0: Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Jonas Esposito. on WCPT 820.
1: Now we must move boldly into the future, grounded by the principles that have propelled us this far and open to fresh possibilities for the future. Scripture teaches us that for everything there is a season. A time for every purpose under heaven. My friends, no matter what title you all, my colleagues, have bestowed upon me, speaker, leader, whip, there is no greater official honor for me than to stand on this floor and to speak for the people of San Francisco. This I will continue to do as a member of the House, speaking for the people of San Francisco, serving the great state of California, and defending our Constitution. And with great confidence in our caucus, I will not seek re-election to Democratic leadership in the next Congress. For me, the hours come for a new generation to lead the Democratic caucus that I so deeply respect.
2: Wow. After almost two decades as Speaker, Nancy Pelosi says that she is going to stay in Congress. She's going to continue to represent San Francisco, but it's time for new leadership. And um, by all accounts, she is going to be there as a guide, as a resource to this new leadership. Here's the speculation. That the new uh, leader of the Dems will be Hakeem Jeffries, the whip. That's the person in charge of making sure you got the votes is going to be Representative Clark, the caucus chair, Representative Pete Aguilar. Uh, Jim Clyburn is going to go for assistant Dem leader. It is it is really something supposedly uh Two different speeches were written for Nancy Pelosi, one where she says she's staying a speaker, one where she said she's stepping down. She took them both home with her last night. And it was a lot of the Democrats had no idea which speech she was going to read. But I thought when, you know, she got a standing ovation when she walked into the chambers today and she looked like a weight had been taken off her shoulders. And I thought to myself, as soon as I saw her demeanor, she is not going to run for speaker again. She's not going to run. Well, since the Republicans have control of the House, she's not going to run to lead the Democrats. She's not going to run to lead the minority party. She just looked energized. She looked happy. She looked relieved. A lot of her family members were in the chamber. And one of the biggest ovations she got was when she talked about her husband, Paul. Her husband, Paul, who, of course, as you know, was attacked by someone who broke into their home looking for Nancy. The plan was to... Uh, Wait in the home until Nancy showed up and then tie Nancy up. And the man said he was going to break her knees until she told him the truth. Whether or not you're willing to write off that attack, yes, obviously this man didn't have both oars in the water, but... There are always people like that. And violent rhetoric raining down on them from government officials, from social media, incites them to take action that we can't be sure they would have taken otherwise. They hear these messages, they ingest these crazy messages, you know. The guy who showed up at the pizza parlor, I think it was in New Jersey, with a gun because he was convinced that I think it was Hillary Clinton was abusing children in the basement. I know it sounds crazy, but he heard it so often and he believed it and he he felt he had to do something. He had to rescue those children. Kevin McCarthy, I think, is going to rue the day that he decided to run for speaker because I think his party members are going to make his life miserable, utterly miserable. They already treat him like dirt. I mean, everybody is speculating that, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to be a thorn in his side. And because their majority, when, when all is said and done, they definitely have the house, but it's only going to be by the slimmest of majorities, which means that even if they are not comfortable coming out publicly as moderate Republicans, there are still some that are moderate Republicans that are just trying to keep their heads down until the crazy goes away. They are going to. They're going to fight back. They're not just going to let Kevin McCarthy roll over to everything that Marjorie Taylor Greene is going to do. I mean, we've already heard the crazy start to erupt today with, oh, there's going to be investigations. There are going to be investigations of what? Of everything. Everything that you can think of. We're going to show them. (sighs) I'm sure Hakeem Jeffries will do a fine job and I'm sure Nancy Pelosi will be there to guide him every step of the way. But really, it is, an, it is the end of an era. And the woman didn't even get into politics until later in life. She raised five kids. She was a housewife. But her family had always been very politically involved, very politically active, She said she never thought she would ever run for elected office, let alone end up running for the speaker. But she's a brilliant strategist. She really is. She's going to be a valuable asset. I'm glad she has decided to stay in Congress. I think that's important. I shared with you at the top of the hour a little bit about um, when she made the big announcement. I want to share with you now what she said as she closed her remarks today.
1: In this House, we begin each day with a prayer and a pledge to the flag. And every day, I am in awe of the majestic miracle that is American democracy. As we participate in a hallmark of our republic, the peaceful, orderly transition from one Congress to the next, let us consider the words of, again, President Lincoln, spoken during one of America's darkest hours. He called upon us to come together, to swell the chorus of the Union, when once again touched as surely they will be by the better angels of our nature. That, again, is the task at hand. A new day is dawning on the horizon And I look forward, always forward, to the unfolding story of our nation. A story of light and love, of patriotism and progress, of many becoming one. And always an unfinished mission to make the dreams of today the reality of tomorrow. Thank you all. May God bless you and your families, and may God bless, continue to bless our veterans and the United States of America. Thank you all so much.
2: Nancy Pelosi, concluding her remarks. In the chamber today, the House of Representatives, where she announced that she is not going to try to continue to lead the Democrats. She is just going to be a member of Congress representing San Francisco. <sighs> She's an amazing woman. I'm so glad she is going to be there. Because I think that um, I think it's going to. I think it's going to be a volatile two years coming up. I don't expect much to get done uh, because even though Kevin McCarthy will not be able to really control the Republicans in the House of Representatives, we've got the Senate. So even if some crazy erupts out of the House, the Senate's going to kill it. Um, we may see President Biden using more executive actions. There is a limit to what he can do with that power, and also anything done by the president writing an executive order can be easily and quickly undone by the next president. So far, there's only one Republican that has chosen to enter the race, Donald Trump. We will see if anybody else has the stones to go up against him. In other political news... um it looks like Lauren Bobert, I know you were watching this race and you're sad too. It looks like Lauren Bobert may have pulled out the race for Congress in her congressional district in, in Colorado. Why, why people would vote for her is just, I, I just can't imagine. You must really hate the Democratic party to vote for Lauren Bobert. I can't imagine a less, effective, less competent person to send to Congress. Um, it's actually, the vote is so close, there may be, it's possible, an automatic recount will be triggered. Oh, and in Arizona, remember before the governor's race, Carrie Lake was asked if she would respect the results, and she told who whichever reporter asked her that question, well, if I win, sure, If I don't win, I can't promise, I can't promise anything. And uh, indeed, she is saying today that she is exploring every avenue to fight her loss in Arizona to Katie Hobbs, the Democrat, who is now governor. There is no indication that there was any fraud. There is no indication that Carrie Lake has any path to being the next governor of Arizona. But true to her word, she said that if she lost, she wasn't sure that she would accept defeat, and she has not. Trumpian to the core. Absolutely Trumpian to the core. Good news for Democrats in a very close race. I'm sure you've heard this by now. Karen Bass is the new mayor of Los Angeles. Karen Bass who was a very effective member of Congress, Karen Bass, who was on the short list, short list to be Joe Biden's vice president. And frankly, I think she would have been awesome. Uh, But she decided that she was going to run for mayor in Los Angeles and she has won. Did you think it was interesting on election night when we were talking to Hal Sparks and uh, we were talking about how it was so much fun to talk about this election and we couldn't wait to talk to him about the next big election. And he told us that he might not be able to uh, speak with us next time around because he might run for office out in California. I know he's he grew up around here. He went to Nutri High School, but he uh he lives in California now. It's where he does his show. And uh He actually said that he was he had considered running for mayor. And then when Karen Bass declared that she was going to run for mayor of Los Angeles, he was like, you know what? She's good. Rather than running against her, I will support her. But he said he may he may run for a seat on the Los Angeles City Council. If he does, I guarantee you that that is a race we will follow. Heck, I already told him that I would I would fly out to California and knock on doors for him. I think he'd be terrific in government. He is one of the smartest people I have ever talked to. And he's one of those people when you talk to him about politics or about a bill or legislation. He's read it. He's read it. He's understood it. He's digested it. And he can tell you exactly what it does and what it doesn't do, what it says and what it doesn't say. We need more of that in elected office. Anyway, it's I want to take a break. I'm going to talk more politics with you when we come right back after this.
0: Take Jonas Pazito live, local and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820.
3: You're listening to WCPT 820 because facts matter.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820.
2: There is more politics of the day to talk about, but before we get to that, uh, as you may have heard, Nancy Pelosi made the big announcement today. It was about noon, uh, saying that she was going to stay in Congress, but she was not going to seek a leadership position with the the Democrats in the um, upcoming Congress. She said that she loved San Francisco and she would be proud to represent it, but it was time for new leadership for the Democrats in Congress. By all accounts, Hakeem Jeffries looks like the candidate who will be taking that spot. I mentioned earlier that she made a a really emotional statement about her husband, Paul Pelosi, who was— He's still recovering from a fractured skull after being hit in the head with a hammer by a man who broke into their San Francisco home looking for Nancy Pelosi so that he could torture her until she was able to tell him the truth. She got a standing ovation from the crowd who um, listened to her talk about Paul. And before we go on to other political news of the day, I want
1: to share that clip with you now you. For my dear husband Paul, who has been my beloved partner in life and my pillar of support, thank you. We're all grateful for all the prayers and well wishes as he continues his recovery. Thank you so much.
2: Pelosi enjoyed today. The first was when she walked into the chambers. Uh, She kept saying she kept trying to convene the meeting and uh, everybody kept clapping. A a nice send off. You know, President Biden reached out to her and said, you know, that he would like her to, to stay. She's been so effective in that job. She is a very strategic thinker and the Democrats have so benefited from having her in a leadership position. <sighs> okay end of an era it, it, you know it's I'm so used to when somebody's been in a position for so long, you just get used to them and the way they do things and the fact that you can count on them. So um, it's a it's a passing of the torch. We will have to um, start doing a deeper dive into Hakeem Jeffries. As I said, uh, the um, the estimates or the guesstimates are that Hakeem Jeffries will be the new leader of the Dems, Representative Clark the whip, caucus chair, Representative Aguilar, and that uh, Jim Clyburn will go for assistant Democratic leader. That is the prediction of how this is going to break. By the way, in other uh, Republican news, you know how Rick Scott challenged Mitch McConnell to be the uh, minority leader in the Senate? Apparently, Rick Scott had 10 supporters. But obviously, even, you know, with 49 Republicans losing 10 39, Mitch McConnell still had the votes he needed to retain his leadership position, but there are cracks. Ten senators were willing to break ranks. Rick Scott has also been making noises. This should be hilarious that he wants to possibly, possibly make a run for president in 2024. He's a he's a pretty far right, alt right kind of guy. But one thing he did learn from Donald Trump was how to do the grift. Um, he's in charge of a, a Republican committee to fundraise. Remember, I told you Trump put out a fundraising email that was supposedly for Herschel Walker. And if you really if you clicked through, it said that 90 percent of what you were donating was going to go to Trump and 10 percent was going to go to Herschel Walker. Rick Scott has upped the ante. He put out a fundraising email through the Republican committee. The the email is even signed by Herschel Walker. But when you click through and read the fine print, the Republican, the National Republican committee, Senate committee, gets ninety nine percent of what you donate. One percent. One percent goes to Herschel Walker. (laughs) For every $10 donation, that means the Republicans get $9.90 and Herschel Walker gets a dime. Oh, has this man learned the grift or what? Hats off to Rick Scott. Um, The phone lines are going. Uh, Jim is calling in from Chicago. Let's go to Jim. Hey, Jim.
4: Hi, John. The race in L.A. for mayor, is it Karen Bass? Is it the woman who won? Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm.
4: Yes. And, and, but her opponent apparently is a carpetbagger, Republican or Democrat, billionaire. Spent $150 million. And it sounds like he was directed directly at the homeless because Karen Bass has got a plan to transaction uh, real estate to put about 70,000 people in homes there the homeless and the other gentleman was running against her used it as a uh, climber over the head with issue you know the, there were so many homeless here we were going to deal with it what are we going to do but now, now, think about this. How egocentric can you be? You're a billionaire. You spend $150 million to become mayor, and you're really targeting the homeless. With well, $150 million, you could do a life for the homeless. I know I could. Exactly. You
2: know I mean? Exactly. <laughs> I,
4: I, could. I can figure out a you know I could figure out a better scheme than that one. Yeah. I, I give her so much credit because her, uh, her credentials are impeccable. She worked for Bobby Kennedy and... Uh, I think she really understands the democratic message. I just wanted to bring that up. John. It was so crazy to hear a guy spend 150 million dollars to become mayor of L.A. I know. Where does does this end? Well, you
2: know, these these really rich guys, they seem to think, well, even the ones and frankly, the majority of them, they didn't earn their money. They they inherited the bulk of it. They may have done better, but they inherited it. And they seem to think, gosh, I'm rich. You know, I should probably lead a city or lead a state or lead the country because, you know, I must be really smart to be so rich. It doesn't work that way, folks. It doesn't work that way.
4: Anyway, Joan, have a great show. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Jim. Thanks for the call. Yeah. And as, you know, a home, people who aren't without housing, it's a problem everywhere, but it's really a big problem in Los Angeles. Um, I was out there visiting my daughter last winter and, You know, it doesn't matter if you're in a good neighborhood, bad neighborhood, whatever. I mean, you just go by these streets where people seem to have set up a camp. And, um, you know, you know, makes, I guess if you're going to be without housing, that climate makes more sense than our climate. But, um, it is a big problem. And I'm glad she's got a plan for it. Anyway, um, we are going to get started on our day today. We've got a lot of guests today. It's going to be fun. Let's get to it right after this. This is WCPT 820, where you can hear the Stephanie Miller Show every weekday, 8 to 11 a.m., because facts matter.
0: This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
2: It wasn't that long ago that we had a panel, which we do. We try to do one every month here. Um, you know, November, we've had a lot of election stuff. But uh, starting in December, we're going back into the panel business. We had a panel not too long ago on diversity, a subject that is going to be a lot more in the news, particularly as the Supreme Court considers a challenge to the idea of affirmative action. One of the sponsors for that panel, Steve Satek, Chief Commercial Officer at Flourish Research. Uh, He was on our panel and he joins us now uh, to bring us up to speed on uh, anything that may have happened since we last spoke about this topic. Steve, thank you so much for being here. It is nice to talk with you again.
5: Thanks for having me, John. I really do appreciate it. And yes, a lot has happened since we spoke last. <laughs> you know, so, you know. Uh, go ahead.
2: I was ta- well. I was talking to a lawyer, uh, a Supreme Court expert, about this case, and she said that you know it's it's the Supreme Court. Um, it does not necessarily like affirmative action, but they like diversity, um, and it would seem to me that those two things are connected. Uh, explain to me how they might not be or you know how diversity might be different than um trying to give minority races underprivileged folks a leg up
5: you know, um, you know, I, I, and honestly, I'm not a lawyer. I'm actually a scientist and work in the the medical field. So affirmative action doesn't really play as much into our our field. But certainly, when you talk about the aspects of diversity and you know equality and, and inclusion, that's that's stuff that re- we really look at. And I can actually talk to you from a medical perspective, just saying how, as we've actually tested new medications and got new medications approved for prescription over the last 20, 30 years, by and large, we've done it almost all in a a Caucasian population. And that's just wrong. And we need to actually start including more diverse Um, representatives into the medical research field so there's been a really pretty big push in the last you know five years or so particularly from the FDA that came out with some guidances on on how and why we're supposed to be including underrepresented minorities in our research processes Um, you know I understand that in research there's been a lot of problems in the um, in the minority community over the past many years ago but um, today there's been a lot of safety um, precautions put in place risks have been mitigated and and, and what we do know is that we need more minorities in clinical trials to make sure that the medications that we're all using are tested on a wide variety of people and that they actually are safe and effective in those
2: populations. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know that you are um, working on an initiative that's going to involve people on the north side of Chicago, and it has something to do with dementia. Explain this whole thing to me.
5: Yeah, this is something so exciting to me. Um so I'm part of a group that's creating a dementia-friendly community on the north part, um, side of Chicago. Uh, my clinic, Great Lakes Clinical Trials, is actually one of the key sponsors, along with the Chicago Methodist Senior Services. And what we're doing is, and this is a nationwide effort, there's communities all over the country that are dementia-friendly communities. And we're trying to bring, well, there's probably, I think there's three other communities in the city of Chicago that are set up right now, and this is the first one that would we'll be be up on the north side. And it's going to be in the Uptown, Andersonville, Edgewater, and Rogers Park community communities. And what it's going to do is actually provide the neighborhood with resources and education of how to actually integrate people with dementia into our communities. So, for example, right now, people don't necessarily know where to go for resources um, and where to get help. If there's somebody in the street that needs help, how do we get resources? What do you call the police is what people's first thought are. The police don't even, they, they don't necessarily know how to Treat a person with dementia. And they don't necessarily know the resources to go to. So, one of our jobs is to create a resource net that's out there to make sure that everybody knows where to go. The second thing is, we need to make sure people are aware and cognizant and, and intentional about when there's a person with dementia that's, that's coming into a business, how to treat them, how to actually, you know, how to recognize certain signs and, and that sort of stuff. So, there'll be training within our businesses and our community, which will be fantastic. Um, we'll be providing resor- uh, research to certain um, participants for clinical trials that's one of the things that Great Lakes is going to be involved in but overall it's really trying to make sure that we're including people with dementia into our community so that they feel safe and they, they can go shopping you know, working with certain grocery stores and maybe having hours of certain days that are designated for people who are starting to have memory loss coming in and with their caregivers so it's not as busy and crazy of a time so things like that is, is what's going to set us apart as part of this dementia friendly community
2: with this population that is dementia—you know—we think of that as something that happens to older people. What is the age range that you see with this problem of dementia?
5: You know, it, it's interesting over the over the um, gosh, probably last ten years, we've been seeing it getting it identifying it in a younger and younger population. So, now, is that because
2: more age- people are getting it, or just that we're better at spotting it?
5: I personally think it's we're better at spotting it. We're better, you know. One thing we've done really well, I believe, is that we've actually started to remove the stigma of, of Alzheimer's disease. We're not there yet. We're not, we're not there by any means. But today is a much better place than we were 20 years ago in terms of saying. I'm having some problems, I need to get some help. And people are doing that more frequently now because there's more hope out there through clinical trials and there's certain medications or therapies that we've um, developed that actually show that we can actually reduce the decline of memory loss. So saying that you have memory loss at a younger age and you're going to your doctor to talk about it has less of a stigma because there's more hope out there. And when I say medications or therapies, we certainly are looking for medications that will help slow down uh, memory loss. Or stopping in his tracks. But we also looked at different therapies. For example, we partnered with the, um, the McGall YMCA up in Evanston, and we did an exercise study where we had people who had mild memory loss going to the gym and either doing um, high-dose exercise, which was basically lifting weights, or low-dose exercise, which was doing bending and stretching. And we showed, we showed that there was a trend that people who exercised more actually had a slower rate of decline in their memory than if they were not exercising. So, you know, you, you, you know this, you go to your doctor, your doctor says, get some exercise, that's good for you. We actually ran a randomized controlled clinical trial to show that it actually is the case for your better um, memory health.
2: So the kind of exercise that helps with memory, does it have to be like lifting weights or can it just be walking? I'm always curious what people mean when they say exercise.
5: Yeah, so we, we did it, and as I've mentioned, in two different types of exercises. There was high-dose exercise and low-dose exercise, and the high-dose just meant you were walking more or you were lifting weights. You were basically getting your heart rate elevated to a certain level, so you were kind of almost starting to break a sweat. You don't have to go there and lift giant weights and that sort of thing. You can literally lift cans of soup at home and, and do stuff like that. But that is, that's what we consider high dose exercise. And for low dose exercise, we just considered that to be, you know, um, stretching, um, bending, doing yoga if you can, doing chair yoga, those sorts of things. And we showed that it didn't matter if it was high dose exercise or low dose exercise. Both really? of exercise regimens actually helped reduce your cognitive decline. Um, it was it was a it was a nice trend. It was actually reported nationally, and so we're kind of excited that we participated in this study. And it was just my my little research center here on the north side of Chicago um, doing this study along with the likes of you know Stanford and NYU and all these big uh, medical centers around the country. But we we participated with the um, Evanston YMCA, and it was a, a, a really Really great experience.
2: You know, I'm beginning to see the kind of thing you're talking about reflected in the media, because, as you know, um, once, you know, filmmakers and television show producers discovered d- dementia or Alzheimer's, you know, they would do these storylines. But it was always just it was so negative and it was like, oh, you know, this person is just so impaired and life is over and this family is coming apart and for the first time ever, there was a I don't know if you saw it, the, the Jane Fonda Lily Tomlin sitcom, Grace and Frankie. Um Jane Fonda's husband was Martin Sheen, and he at in the very final episodes, he was having memory problems. And they handled it in such a hopeful, loving way. I mean, his he's by then divorced from her and married to a man, and his partner you know does things like you know reminds him of what he's forgotten and takes him to places um from their early time together that might trigger memories and it is just it's the first time i have seen that kind of impairment portrayed as something other than just oh my gosh you know life is over everything is going to be awful from this point on it was uh it was loving and it was hopeful
5: mhm I, you know, it's 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 all about trying to reduce that stigma and, and providing respect to those that actually are having this this problem. And for so long, it was memory loss was considered just this shameful thing. And now we're trying to explain to people that it is a disease. It's a disease of your brain. There are changes going on in your brain. And I hate to say this, Joan, but you know these changes in your brain can start twenty to thirty years before you start to have memory loss. It's well, that's what I've been life.
2: reading, too, that now <laughs> yeah. researchers are trying to find blood tests, looking for a protein or something, uh-huh. because the, the my understanding is exactly what you said. By the time you see a symptom, it's been present for quite a while. I want to talk to you about this in greater detail, uh, but, Steve, we need to take a break. I'm talking to Steve Satak, Chief Commercial Officer at Flourish Research. We'll be back with more right after this.
0: Thanks, John. Facebook, message us, Instagram, follow us, Twitter, tweet us. They keep me connected. Let's get social on the socials. WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk.
3: WCPT 820, where facts matter.
0: Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820.
2: One of the sponsors of our diversity segment was Flourish Research. Steve Satek is chief commercial officer there, and he's been telling us about this uh, initiative to make Andersonville, Edgewater, Rogers Park, and Uptown dementia-friendly communities by teaching businesses how better to deal with these people, to teach the people who live in those areas or communicate with them what kind of resources and help is available we were just talking a minute ago about how the belief is now that before you see any symptoms you have had some sort of what well, we call it a brain injury or a brain disease steve for a couple decades
5: yeah, I, I would. it's definitely a disease. I, I like to refer to it as, uh, as brain changes. And uh, some of us may have heard the terms amyloid plaques or, or tau mm-hmm. tangles. Those are the scientific terms for the changes that we see in, in the brain of somebody who has Alzheimer's disease. And as you mentioned, it can happen 20 years before you start having memory problems. Now, the interesting thing, I'm going to take a little history lesson here. You go back All to right. 1906 where there was a Dr. Alzheimer's. That's where he got the name Alzheimer's. And he had a patient that he was following who was having these memory problems she was in a, in a psychiatric institution but she had memory problems not really psychiatric problems and when she passed away he um, did an autopsy in her brain he found these amyloid plaques and tau tangles in her brain and he, he coined them back in 1906 so the problem is the only way we could figure that out up until recently was really doing autopsies um, you know, we were able to, a few decades back, we were able to start doing spinal taps and we can actually do spinal sampling, which is not the thing that most people want to do, and we can actually see that there is amyloid and tau in, in your spinal fluid. And then we progressed to about 10 years ago where we actually started to do brain scans and we can actually start seeing amyloid plaques and tangles in your brain through things that are similar to an MRI, but it's called a PET scan. And so that was our, our standard of diagnosis up until just within the last couple of years where we started to develop blood tests where we can actually do a regular blood draw and see if you're actually having those changes in your brain based on the results of a blood test. So... The, the the whole industry has been progressing, and we're trying to do something to help improve the diagnosis of of Alzheimer's disease. So here's the thing, Jim: if you are not having any memory problems, and you go to your doctor, and then you have your blood test, and you say, "Oh, I'm actually I actually sorry I'm starting to have these changes in my brain." People are like, "Why do you, Why would I want to know that? I don't want to know that I'm on on the track for Alzheimer's disease." I would say you do want to know because you can do something about it. You can get better exercise, you can start eating healthier. You can join a clinical trial and get access to new medications that are meant to stop the buildup of plaque, the amyloid plaque and tau tangles. That's where the research is today is that we're trying to develop medications that stop the disease progression in your brain before people start to have memory loss. It's a prevention and that's we're coming very close to finding that right now.
2: This blood test that you're talking about is it still experimental?
5: The 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 test for amyloid is amyloid plaques is not experimental. You can go to your doctor. Unfortunately, it's a little expensive. Would go to your private doctor, and it's not covered by insurance. Um, the tau test for tau tangos is still experimental, and but you can get both of those tests done through clinical trial processes. So if you join a clinical trial, a lot of our studies right now do that at the very first visit when you come in and we can actually see if you're actually having those changes before you even get accepted into the clinical trial. If you don't have those changes, you don't qualify for the clinical trial and you have a clean bill of health for now.
2: I thought that there was some research that counteracted the whole plaque theory of Alzheimer's that they uh, uh, if I let me see if I can remember this right. There were a group of nuns and some of them, they all you know, they all agreed to autopsies when they died. And some of them, which who were completely, um completely cognizant, their brains were functioning great when they died and were autopsied. they were found to have plaques. And so people were starting to think, well, maybe it isn't just the accumulation of this or maybe this is um, something that just happens with age. Um, are we sure that this tau protein and these amyloid plaques, are we sure that they are the cause or are we sure they're connected
5: you know, um, we're we're never sure of anything, Joan. Um,
2: <laughs> that's good and to as, know.
5: Especially as, as scientists, that's where we're researching. We're trying to figure these out. But we are, we are fairly certain, especially when it comes to tau, a little bit more than amyloid, we do believe that there's a strong connection. Um, and, and most researchers would agree that there's a connection there. Now, I, I'm very familiar with the NUN study that you're mentioning. And one of my theories on that is, even though these NUNs who might have been in their 90s might have, Passed away when their memory was totally fine and had amyloid on their brain. My theory is that they probably would have developed memory loss. In the coming years, or started they—they they were just—they uh. they were just late in their in their development cycle. So that's my own personal thought. If not you know mm-hmm. I don't know if it's everybody's out there, but that's what I was I think about that. But I do think that there's there's a combination. You know, there's a lot of research being done into amyloid and tau. There's also research being done into inflammation of the brain, and, and if you can reduce inflammation, maybe that could actually help reduce the the spreading of plaques and, and, and tau tangles. Um, there's also theory into the Gut too. How you know? There's a lot of medica- a lot of uh, uh, medical research looking at treating things in the gut that actually connect to your brain or connect to your heart. And if you can treat some of the bacterial that's in your in your gut, maybe that's going to help improve what's going on in your brain. So we are looking at a lot of other things other than tau and, and amyloid. But most of the research that's out there right now is actually focusing in those areas. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're preempting this a little bit because in in a few weeks, uh, first week of December. Um, is the Clinical Trials and Alzheimer's Disease Conference out in San Francisco, and I'll be going there with a few of my colleagues. And that's really where we're going to see a lot more um, data be released on, on certain medications and seeing how they're they're moving through the development pipeline, and just really see where there's other new areas that people will be looking at. So we're kind of okay.
2: Well, we'll have to have you back. The then. we're going to have to have you back because we got to go over I'm this. Um, we have a caller with a question. Joe is calling in from Edgewater and has a question for you. Hello, Joe. You're on with me and Steve Satek. Go ahead.
6: Hey, Joe. Hi. Real quick question um, is, are, are you currently doing a trial? My father, um, had, my father had Alzheimer's, literally, the real Alzheimer's. And I just wanted to know if you guys are doing a trial on family members of people that had Alzheimer's.
5: You know, um, that's a good question. We are, it's not necessarily looking just for people who have family members, but we are looking for, here's the unfortunate truth, Joe, and I'm sorry to say this, but people who are family members there is a hereditary link to, to Alzheimer's disease. Right. It's not guaranteed by any means, It's it's, but you have a greater chance for developing Alzheimer's. So we are doing studies right now, we call them prevention studies, and we're looking exactly for that person I was describing earlier, whose memory is, is pretty much normal, but we can actually do some tests to see if you have those changes going on in your brain. And if you do, Then you would qualify for the clinical trial, and we would um, test a medication to see if those changes in the brain can be reversed. Um, There's a lot of uh, we call them inclusion and exclusion criteria to see if you fit into the clinical trial or not. Um, So I would just suggest just calling the clinic, and our our team can kind of go through those with you, or you can visit our website at GreatLakesClinicalTrials.com. So we are so we might not be looking exactly for a family member, but a certain person like you would actually probably benefit from screening from a Trial like that.
2: Thanks for the call, Joe. I appreciate it.
1: Thank
2: you. Um, I have a question, uh, Steve. We've talked about. I mean, obviously, when somebody is severely impaired, that's pretty obvious. But you know, the earliest signs, what to look for. I've always heard people say, "Well, you know, it's not if you misplace your car keys. It's whether you suddenly can't remember whether or not you own a car." But that seems a little extreme. Um, how would what would you look for in a friend or family member or what would you notice that might raise your suspicions?
5: You know, it's interesting. I, I use the example of car keys um, in when I, <laughs> I do talk to people about this. But it's—I look at it as more like not losing your car keys, because frankly, I've been doing that since I've been in my twenties. Yeah. Um, but if you find if you find your car keys like in the icebox or in, in places that they just don't belong, that that can be something a little bit more serious. Um, certainly, if you're having problems, um, you know, we used to use the example of balancing a checkbook and in, in, in writing checks. Those those days are kinda of gone, but if, if people are still trying to write checks and, and, and they're having trouble with doing that, that could be problematic. Um, difficulty making decisions. Um, you know Walking, here's the thing, walking into a room and forgetting why you're in the room, I think many of us do that quite often. But if you find yourself doing it excessively, that could be something problematic. It comes down to that an overarching umbrella term for this is just basically your quality of life. If things like these little memory lapses that you're having, if they start to affect your quality of life... That could be that's problematic, and you should you be going to see your doctor mm-hmm. for example if you're if you used to pay bills on time all the time and now you find yourself with late fees because you're not paying them on time and you forget to do to write bills that's affecting your quality of life, and that could be something problematic ah. so you just have, you just have to look as here's the thing joan as as we age we're all going to have some level of memory loss. Our memory when we're 70 or 80 years old is not going to be as sharp as when we were 20. There's been a lot of studies out there to show that there is going to be a decline. But that's just age-related decline, and that's normal. We're looking, if your actually decline is more than normal, that's when this could be something more serious. It could be Alzheimer's disease or some other form of dementia.
2: And is it, is it possible that some whether it's your genetics or what, some people just stay sharper, longer. Because I swear, Steve, my whole family, we've been memory challenged. I mean, I remember when my son was still living at home, he was 18 years old. And I'd be like, you know, it'd be like it would be unbelievable, you know, what he would forget. And we've been putting things in the refrigerator for our whole lives. That's one of the places we look, Steve, when we can't find something i think that my family we may already be at a low level so it the it's subtle signs are probably not going to work for us
5: you know that's that's interesting and that's why it's really important that you get a baseline memory test and so you can go to your doctor, you can come to Great Lakes, we do, we do tests here all the time and we, people can come back and every year and see if they're getting better or getting worse. That's a way to do it. If you don't want to come to the clinic or go to your doctor, there are different websites. Um, I definitely am I'm a fan of a, a, a group called the Alzheimer's Prevention Trials, it's APT, and they have a thing called the APT Web Study. And I've, been, I've actually been a member of this web study for about five years now. And every three months or so, they send me an email saying, hey, take this this test online and you know there's little cards that show up and you got to <laughs> click on the cards that look the same and stuff but I've been doing that for five years and I can trace my results from quarter to quarter to see if I have a decline or, or not and it's you know it, it is scientific there's a lot of validity behind it but it's something for me to look at to say hey is there something going on and if I start to see a decline that's when I'm really going to try I want to do something about it.
2: Thank you so much, Steve. It is a delight to talk to you. And I really mean it. I want to talk to you again when you get back from that conference. So we'll schedule. I'll reach out. We'll schedule something for mid to late December, okay?
5: Thank you so much, Jonah. I, obviously, you can tell I'm passionate about this topic, so I'm happy to, <laughs> to share whatever knowledge that I do, I do have. So thank you to, uh, to you and, uh, and all your guests. Thank you.
2: Thank you. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more politics right after this.
0: jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
2: We like to chat with our good friends at the Better Government Association. They're always digging into something interesting. Well, they've decided uh, to create a new way for subscribers and followers to interface with them and get good information. Uh, David Greising is the president and CEO of the Better Government Association, and he is going to explain this so much better than I just did. David, welcome back to the show.
6: Uh, Yeah, what we've done is we've created an all news website, uh, Illinois Answers Project, that'll feature our traditional investigative reporting, as well as a new form of investigative reporting focused on things that work or seem to be working in government and elsewhere. And then separate from that standalone website uh, is BGA policy which focuses on the policy objectives of the Better Government Association. That includes transparency, equity, and accountability in government. And so we'll have um, Illinois Answers, the, the news site. We'll have our projects. We'll also have uh, work that we do with partner organizations. And we'll even feature some content that just comes to us directly from our partners that people might not otherwise have seen if they didn't visit our site.
2: Which partners are you going to be working with?
6: Well, we already partner quite a lot with with, uh, organizations like Chalkbeat, like the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Sun-Times, WBEZ, Injustice Watch. Uh, Those are going to continue to be partners of ours, and uh, we are always talking about projects with them. We also are uh, forming partnerships with a number of uh, downstate papers. Uh, the, The Kind of cutbacks in newsrooms that we're familiar with here in Chicago have hit even harder in some of the downstate partners and, or newspapers. And so they need additional reporting resources and the BGA, uh, will be providing reporting resources so that investigative and, um, uh, you know, ambitious journalism can still be done in, in places like Peoria, Decatur, Springfield, Rockford, et cetera.
2: So you'll be sharing content with them. Will they be sharing content with you?
6: Yes. uh, Both uh, stories that they produce on their own as well as joint projects that we will do together with them. And and you're right. uh, We will ship our content to them, which will help strengthen those newspapers by having some of the content that uh, the Illinois Answers Project newsroom produces.
2: So, again, the Illinois Answers Project There is going to be a way, though, isn't there through this for regular people to ask you guys questions or interact with you? Or did I misunderstand?
6: No, yes. Um, They they, uh, can reach out to our newsroom. We often hear from uh, people who have tips, who, um, who have something to say about what we publish, who have ideas of investigations that we ought to launch. And so we are open just as the Better Government Association always has been. We are open to engagement with uh, readers, members, uh, people who are interested in seeing better government in the state of Illinois.
2: Okay, so when this content sharing, what are the parameters like I know? what the Better Government Association does, the kinds of data-driven research you do, the investigations, and a lot of it is very government-centric. Is that the kind of content that you want from your partners, or is it more wide open?
6: Well, it, it, it's, it is the kind of content we want from partners. We we feel that, as far as like coverage of the day's news, spot news goes, <laughs> that's all still being very well done by... Those who are already doing that, the Tribune, sometimes and others. Um, we're not moving into that area at all. Um, we are focused on deep dive, and it, these days not only deep dive stuff. We do we do uh, projects that are now only take a few weeks for us to produce instead of months long like our traditional deep dive investigations. And so we'll have a fair amount of that. And we're focusing on um, four major topic areas as well. So. Uh, we think that are the most important topics facing uh, our community. Uh, those include public safety and criminal justice, equity and economic opportunity, education, and government finance and accountability. So, stories that fall into those buckets also are of interest to uh, Illinois Answers Project as we set out on doing our investigations.
2: Now, is this going to be something that people get for free? Is this a subscription service? Is this a newsletter? How? What are the mechanics here?
6: Uh, it, it is. Uh, it is available free on the internet. Um, uh, IllinoisAnswers.org is the name of the um, of our uh, homepage. We also uh, will have newsletters uh, that are going to focus on um uh, a number of different things. One called The Answer is uh, kind of summarizes some of our investigations and investigations by our partners. Uh, Point of Information is a new newsletter that uh, Alex Nitkin, the former editor of The Daily Line, will be writing about the behind-the-scenes machinations of Chicago and Illinois government. And then a, a newsletter called The Solution <laughs> will be focused on solutions journalism here in Illinois and across the country.
2: What does that mean, solutions journalism?
6: Solutions journalism uh, is different than traditional investigative journalism, which, frankly, is on the lookout for things that are going wrong. Gover- structural breakdowns in government is the bread and butter of the Better Government Association historically. Solutions journalism looks at things that seem to be going right or improvements that are being made, and then we look at those uh topics with the same skeptical eye and the same burden of proof that we do when we do an investigative project. And so if when we hear something is going better or going well, we look into it. And if the proofs are there, we write about it. And and just to give you an example, um, our our solution story on our website right now takes a look at domestic violence court. There have been a problem with people uh, who are... Abused by their spouses or their or their partners, uh, not getting to uh, the court behind them to become safe, to be made safe from those threats, and there were some reforms put in place uh, after we saw a big spike in domestic violence issues at the height of the COVID pandemic, and um, those reforms have have made some improvements, but there are still some significant shortfalls, and so our our solution story takes a look at the improvements that have been made, and the ways in which there are still some shortcomings that need to be addressed.
2: And I know from talking to Casey Toner that sometimes when you, uh, an investigator, or is, is investigating something and wants to maybe see where something worked or where somebody tried something, um, I remember, Casey, I forget we were talking about, I think, legalization of drugs, and I, I if, if I'm if I'm remembering this correctly, and David, there is by there's every chance I'm not. Uh, but he traveled to Oregon because there was a program out there that you know, they had passed laws already on this subject to see how it was working for them. Is that what you mean by also um, showing not just that there is a problem, but maybe how to fix it?
6: Yes, exactly. And Casey's follow-up story, written
2: from—did I remember that right? By the way, what was was oh, that about yeah, drugs? You got
6: a great memory. You got a Jeez. great memory. yes. It was about drugs. It was about drug remediation efforts, and it started with a traditional investigative story he did about what we call t- dead-end drug arrests, where people were being ar- arrested uh, for very small amounts of drugs and not being held for trial for weeks and months on end, people who, based on an arrest for a small amount of marijuana or uh, uh, some other uh, drug, uh, back when marijuana was illegal, um, that they would, um, they would lose their job, uh, lose connection with their family, be held for a long time, and a lot of times these cases were not even prosecuted. And so after Casey did that investigative piece, he then looked around, well, where is a place that is, this is being done better? And Portland came up and he went out and reported that out and found that some of the reforms in Portland really have been beneficial to people who are in similar circumstances.
2: Hmm. Um, we need to take a break, David. I'm talking to David Greising, who is uh, uh, president of the Better Government Association. They're uh, rolling out a new website called the illinois answers project we're going to continue our discussion about this right after a break
0: can't listen to Jonas esposito surely you can't be serious live local and progressive in your car today i am serious and don't call me sure don't fret you can still listen to her on the TuneIn in app on both your phone and computer
3: whoa you feel that right away oh. it's just refreshing because facts matter you are listening to wcpt
0: 820 Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Jonas Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Returns right now on WCPT 820.
2: I'm talking to the president of the Better Government Association, David Greising. There is a new website, the Illinois Answers Project, that's being launched by the BGA. And David, even though I know you said it has its own separate website, On the BetterGov.org website, there is a button. If you're like me and you've got too many tabs, just keep the BGA site. There's a button that says uh, Illinois Answers Project takes you right there. I don't know, maybe after it's more established, they'll disconnect our button. But for now, we have it in place. And, (laughs) yes, if you click on it right now, it takes you to the investigations, the solutions, uh, databases, but also there's a section uh, called Opinion. And I know that you wrote an opinion piece about transparency in the Chicago City Council. Um, is that new to for the BGA to have a section on opinion?
6: Well, um, I've written the columns for the Chicago Tribune and for Crane Chicago Business um, since I came to the BGA. And we've always featured my columns. Uh, We're going to um, uh, be recruiting uh, op-ed writers uh, who are uh, uh, diversity of voices from across the civic community here in Chicago and the state. And so in addition to my columns, uh, we will be building this out to be a a real opinion section. So it's a, a lot more ambitious than what we've historically done, which is just to reprint columns that I write or other people at the BGA write. Um, and we really hope it becomes a forum for informed opinion about uh, the impact of government on people's lives.
2: Hmm. Um, now, when you say that you're going to be looking for diverse voices, how do you do that? I mean, what are your criteria uh, for who you're going to um, publish and, and who you're not going to publish?
6: The, well, we're open uh, as any good person. Town Square will have, we're open to a diversity of voices from all walks of life, people who have uh, some authority to speak out on the topic they want to write about. Uh, that may mean that they're um, a, an activist in, in a community. That may mean they're, they're running an organization involved in the civic life of Chicago. That may mean they're a business person, or um, uh, and maybe even they've spent some time in government. Uh, We won't turn it over to people running for office so that they can campaign using our space. Uh, But we do need to uh, do a really good job of representing the the broad diversity of opinion uh, here in the city. Anybody who's looking uh, to make uh, our city or state better, uh, especially with regard to transparent, equitable and accountable government, uh, could have a place in, uh, in this space.
2: I think it would also be interesting uh, for those of us who live up here around the Chicago area to occasionally hear the thoughts of some of those towns that you were talking about earlier, Peoria, Decatur, Springfield. Sometimes I think that we don't communicate well enough with the people who live downstate in Illinois.
6: Uh, I think that's a really astute observation, Joan, and I completely agree. Um, Because of my job, I get downstate uh, fairly often, and it sometimes just feels like an entirely different world. The concerns that people have down there are different. The politics are different down there, uh, et cetera. I mean, when we got to the point where Darren Bailey some years ago tried to kick Chicago out of the state of Illinois, uh, um, that shows that there's a lot of uh, division between uh, what they what they say in downstate above I-80 and below I- I-80, it really is Chicago and the metropolitan area compared to the rest of the state. So you're absolutely right. We need to take those voices into account as well.
2: Mm-hmm. And that's always amazed me that that even though obviously, you know, Chicago isn't going to be kicked out of the state of Illinois. The fact that somebody says it and so many people um, think it's a good idea always amazes me because obviously they don't re- realize or they haven't paid attention to the fact that their communities get more money from Chicago than Chicago ever gets from anybody downstate. It is uh, it is a financial river that flows to the south. And I've heard people say, yeah, they want to kick, fine, let's, let's go, let's secede. We'll just, all that money we would have sent downstate, we'll just keep it. Um, I I think that there's a lot of communication that needs to be clearer in the state of Illinois.
6: Absolutely. Uh, And you're right about the economics of it. Uh, But uh, as we stand, we're we're a state that is uh, rich because of the diversity, uh, because we have uh, agricultural interests, for example, that Chicago benefits from that as well. I mean, we wouldn't have... The financial markets we have, if they didn't start out as as grain and meat markets many, many years ago. And so there's there's a lot that connects us as well as what divides us, and it's important that we be aware of both.
2: No, you've talked about how, especially with this new site, you want to focus on solutions. We talked about how Casey Toner flew to Oregon to see how some ideas he was pursuing in Illinois were already working there. Are you going to cross from solutions into advocacy? If you find a program that works well somewhere, something the state of Illinois could benefit for from, are you going to lobby for it or is there a line you don't want to cross? Um, It's important to understand
6: that solutions journalism is not advocacy. It's objective journalism, just like uh, our investigative reporting is objective journalism. And uh, there is room for advocacy in the opinion section, which is just a person's opinion. And then if you go over to our policy website, that's what our policy people do. And our policy people at the BJ have, have, since our, since our founding a hundred years ago, we've had people working on behalf of more ethical and accountable and open government. And uh, for example, our policy team was involved in the ethics reform. The city council passed this past fall. They work independently of the newsroom, but they do weigh in on on important issues that affect people in Chicago and across Illinois.
2: I seem to recall, I think this also took place in a discussion with Casey, that you were launching a while back a subscription model where people could um, sign up to contribute regularly to the BGA, and there were going to be like – Get togethers. Now, the pandemic may have could totally thrown cold water over this, but I seem to recall him saying that there was going to be some get together at a bar where people who wanted to, you know, who support the work of the BGA could show up and people like Casey and David Kidwell and others could talk about things that BGA was working on. Are you guys still doing that?
6: You know, um, our timing on that did not prove to be great because we did uh, <laughs> launch that program right ahead of. Uh, the pandemic when the world uh, closed up, exactly. So we we moved like many organizations. We moved some of that online, and we had a some. We have had some pretty good uh, engagement events that were online, and we're looking to uh, to move back into the real world again uh, in the first quarter of next year. For the time being. Just getting these two websites up and running and all the changes that we've implemented has been pretty all consuming for us. Yeah. So while we've done a couple of online forums, we're not we haven't gone live just yet.
2: You guys have been pretty busy doing a lot of different things. But um speaking for this government geek, I love politics and I love data investigations, and I also love adult beverages. So David, I'm just saying that, you know, <laughs> sooner rather than later might be a good idea to resurrect this idea.
6: Thank you. Thank you. And we'll make sure you're on the invite list, uh, <laughs> as will all your listeners will be as well. Um, when we get the first one going, we'll reach out to you when we get when we get this launched.
2: I would appreciate that. Thank you very much. Uh, David Greising, president and CEO of the Better Government Association. They have a a new website, and also if you just go to bettergov.org, there's a button, Illinois Answers Project. Click it, and it is um, a lot of great information and links to even more great information. It's really very useful. Thanks uh, for being here, David. Appreciate it.
6: So glad to be with you, Joan. Thank you for all the time and for your interest in what we're doing.
2: You're very welcome. We are going to take a break. We are going to continue with more politics right after this.
0: There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone.
3: Listen to the Tom Hartman radio program every weekday from 11 to 2 right here on WCPT820, where facts matter.
0: Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
2: We had a pretty successful midterm election in the country and certainly in the state of Illinois. Joining us now is State Senator Robert Peters. He represents Illinois' 13, 13th District and uh, is a Democrat who is celebrating the way things went and what that means. So we asked him if he would join us, talk to us a little bit about what he saw and what he thought was important. Robert, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you for having me.
2: So the midterms, um, I know it wasn't a clean sweep, but I thought overall, locally, statewide, and even nationally, Democrats have nothing to be ashamed of, but everything to be proud of.
7: I completely agree, especially with how things went in Illinois.
2: Yeah, um, one of the things that um, we were kind of wondering if it would be supported, um, you know, there was those those little fake newspapers that Dan Proft was behind, really went after Governor Pritzker and really tried to Convince people that the new safety act was somehow going to mean that there was going to be murderers on your doorstep coming through your windows, and the police were going to be powerless to arrest them. Those extreme messages doesn't seem like they were able to convince people. What do you think?
7: I mean, they definitely didn't convince people. I mean, the House uh, Democratic majority didn't shrink; it grew. Uh, I think they now have 78 members out of 119. So the public said uh, after getting inundated with a bunch of fake newspapers and disinformation and racist lies, uh, that they're not going to fall for it, that they reject it, and that they want to see Democrats uh, in Springfield fighting to make sure that we have strong reproductive rights and continue to be a leading state on that, fighting to make sure that we can get these assault weapons you know, off our streets so that we can march in a parade, fighting to make sure that we have, you know, health care and that we're able to have good jobs in the capital bill uh, that is investing in our infrastructure and having one of the strongest environmental uh, and green jobs legislations in the country. It's clear that the voters want Illinois to continue to be the progressive bastion it is in the Midwest and in this country and how we have been a leader You know, I think about what happened in New York, you know, when they faced that onslaught of that tough on crime, right wing rhetoric, uh, many of them backed down. They got scared in Illinois, you know, Governor Pritzker, uh, you know, Speaker Welch and many of us stood up and said, you know, we're going to defend the legislation that we passed. uh, We're going to fight and we're going to take it to people who were trying to play dirty games that obviously failed. Yeah.
2: Uh, I I've got a, most of the people now, obviously, we are a progressive radio station. So a lot of our listeners and the people who email me are progressives. But they were horrified by these newspapers and and the racial undertones. Oh, there's crime and all these pictures of bl- black mug It was just it was really repugnant. Now, your district I know it's sort of Chicago based, but you've got Hyde Park, Kenwood, South Chicago, South Shore, Woodlawn. When you were out and about this campaign season, what what were people saying to you what are what did they want to know? What did they want to make sure you knew?
7: Yeah, I mean I think that the the first thing to know is that people have a real sincere fear around public safety. What they didn't buy into is people who sort of led us to this point, you know, crying wolf and using racist imagery and disinformation in such a political way, as happened with uh, Florida resident Dan Croft and, you know, Wisconsin businessman Dick Uline. Um, they, they not only didn't buy into it, they rejected it and they found it to be gross. It, be, it, it gross It became a thing where people would talk about these newspapers and sort of like, "Can you believe what shocking newspaper did you get today?" And <laughs> then we would talk about different shocking newspapers we got. And so I, I think that's there's that. and then the other part here is you know when you think about what most people talk about, and if you think about the farther southeast side of my district. I mean, it's an environmental justice community. At the end of the day, they're almost always talking about the environmental justice fights. That's at the top of their mind, right? I had to, when I'm talking about my Rust Belt to Green Belt bill that I have, um, I'm also talking about CEDRA, right? That's sort of a thing that's at the top of their mind, or General Iron, that's at the top of their mind. When I'm talking to people, um, you know, in in terms of South Chicago, South Shore, um, even up into Hyde Park and Bronzeville and Kenwood and uh, in Woodlawn, you know, you're talking about the fact that we have guns everywhere um, that, you know, the gun manufacturing industry, every time there's a mass shooting, their stock prices get up. So people don't want to see these guns on the street. They're talking about the fact that we have so much violence. Uh, and when we look at it, we're not, we're not actually intervening. We're not stopping that violence like we need to. And they're seeing how this continues to be a same system over and over again. That's, is perpetually failing and it's frustrating, right? When you think about the demands on public safety that you hear about, it seems like we do this every year and then people tend to go to the exact same, you know, uh, you know, recommendations for what we need to do. And I think people want to see change happen. And you see that particularly and especially uh, what's going to happen in these city elections. And then I have a part of the district that includes Streeterville and uh, river, you know, and in uh, and the Gold Coast and, and parts of the loop and, you know, when when you think about it, people are, they don't want to, they also want to make sure they live in a safe community. They also want to make sure that things are going well, but they also care deeply about transportation issues, right? They want to make sure that people can be able to bike along the bike the bike path, that they're able to cross the street at Balbo and Lakeshore Drive. So these are all sort of things that I've heard about. What And they all have something in common. Everyone would talk about in sort of a, almost joking, but disgustful, disgusting, disgusted manner about these newspapers. It became a thing where you almost laughed because it was so audacious, right? It was so bad. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that it just, and, you know, this is the way I put it, you know, when it came to us as Democrats and particularly uh, for us in the, the black caucus and the progressive caucuses, and I think just a general, I mean, we saw $50 million, go to a candidate who ran in the primary on the Republican side, attacking the safety act. And he bombed out. He failed miserably. You know, he, he, he got it handed to him. Then in the general election, we saw roughly 50 or so million dollars being pumped in using the same tactics. They didn't want to talk about the real issues. People cared about. Didn't want to talk about actually what it means to be safe. One thing that me, what makes someone might feel safe is the fact that when they have an unwanted pregnancy, they can get an abortion. When their life is on the line, they can get an abortion. That's something that is, in my view, about safety. That's a
2: uh-huh. health
7: care safety thing. That's a life safety thing. They didn't want to talk about that. They said we're going to try to take the playbook of you know Republican strategist Lee Atwater from the '80s and then run that on steroids really hoarding on steroids. We're going to darken the face of the mayor. We're going to be conspiratorial about the Jewish governor. We're going to play all types of horrible political games, and we're going to try to win on that. And it bombed. It failed. It failed so badly that the House has 78 members. Right now the Senate has kept 40 members, and the governor is back in the governor's uh, in his office. That, that, it, it was so bad the point where, you know, you, we had historic wins. Nabila Saeed won in the suburbs. Yeah. Uh, right now, yes. And you have a Republican leader in, in DuPage who's fighting for her political life right now that few people saw coming. You saw the Senate Republican, the former Senate Republican leader, um, literally, you know, fighting tooth and nail to hold off a challenge. So it just goes to show that these games and, and my advice to the, uh, you know, to, to Republicans is, you know, I don't think you want to be doubling down on this sort <laughs> of right wing Trumpian aspect. I mean, it's fundamentally flawed and it's going to fail. But, I you know, I'm sure they're going to try to go with uh, Trump Jr. and Ron DeSantis. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I'm sure that, you know, he will uh, he will have his own collapse against, uh, you know, their their great leader, uh, Donald Trump.
2: Yeah, really. Uh, I'm talking with State Senator Robert Peters from the 13th District. We are going to take a quick break. He mentioned something when we were talking before about a initiative he's behind, Rust Belt to Greenbelt. I'm going to get him to talk more about that when we come right back after this.
0: Take Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820.
3: WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter.
0: You know what time it is? Hello! Can you hear me? It's time to return to the best progressive talk show in Chicago Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, now on WCPT 820.
2: I'm joined by State Senator Robert Peters, represents Illinois' 13th District and is um, behind an initiative that he refers to as Rust Belt to Green Belt. Explain what you mean by that, Robert.
7: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, for me, when I came in here, I, in, into the seat, um, one of the things that I always said is, like, i got to represent the entire district. Um, and, you know, there's been a push, as you know, and a movement, um, around renewable energy, green manufacturing, uh, and transitioning um, Rust Belt communities uh, in the 21st century, a, a just transition, uh, as people say. And the Southeast side, I think, is at the sort of perfect crossroads of this and is at the heart of sort of an American industrial revolution. And it's at the heart of you know, much of the environmental justice fight. And when I think about Rust Belt to Green Belt, it's it sits at that intersection of the industrial mm-hmm. revolution and the sort of environmental justice revolution. And it's centered on the idea that, you know, we have an opportunity to bring uh, offshore wind uh, that can help us drive more renewable energy to our grid, uh, help us move off of. Fossil fuels, as you know, we we've, uh, were dealing for quite some time. They started dropping, but with gas prices, for example, and they started moving away from expensive fuels to a new renewable energy. And to have that put together uh, on, on the southeast side and then put into a lake on the southeast side and sort of be at the center of what I would say is, uh, you know, as the bill is called, moving from the Rust Belt to the Green Belt.
2: You know, uh, when the legislature convenes, I know there's a veto, a couple of veto sessions coming up, but when things get going again, uh, is there any particular legislation that you would really like to get behind and make sure it gets passed?
7: Well, I care, you know, when we started off on the Safety Act, we said we were going to do whatever we can to make sure the implementation goes well. We knew for a long time um, that we were going to work on a trailer bill. That's where we're at. We're there to work on a trailer bill. So we can make sure January 1st goes the best it can be. Um, you know, what we learned after $100 million or so against it, that clearly it's not a time to gut, but to make sure that we can make the technical and cleanup changes we need to make, the tinkering we need to make, to make sure January January 1st goes well. So that's, that's there. I think that's uh, another thing that, I, you know, I support and I care about a lot is Rust Belt to Green Belt. I think this is an opportunity for us to build on top of CJEA. Take advantage of President Biden's uh, push for green manufacturing and bring that to the southeast side. And the other one, uh, you know, there's a there's a few things in terms of, you know, as as we get through this, making sure there's some economic justice fights that we're going to be looking at and uh, looking at issues, particularly around, as everyone knows, abortion, uh, continuing to strengthen that and then uh, dealing with uh, the fact that we have an issue with mass shooters and guns. And Mm -hmm. I think those are going to be fights that we're going to have, uh, whether it's in veto or, you know, in lame duck. But I know that that organizing continues to happen. I mean, I always, I say that there was, it turned out there's all this urgency to do something around the safety act because of these horrible mailers and the voters really were saying, you need to do something to strengthen abortion laws. You know, they, a lot, we were, we knew that as Democrats, but the idea is like that little fear. There's a fear about being a Democrat. You know, instead of setting the table, we usually have, you know, Republicans tend to try to try set the table. And in this situation, Republicans are completely wrong. They completely misread the electorate. And the electorate, very young, mind you, much younger than we normally see, were saying no. Uh, not only do we want the Democrats to keep their majority or expand their majority, uh, and keep their super majorities, expand the supermajorities, majorities. Uh, we want them to go even further. And, uh, you know, I'll finish my long rant. I don't think <laughs> of, oh, my God, I'll catch up, sir. But I'll finish my long rant by saying this Illinois, you know, since with this General Assembly, with this governor, um, with people who are organizing on the streets uh, in every part of the state, has had magnificently progressive policies rooted in lifting up people, no matter their zip code. That was for the last four years. And the public has said that they support that progressive vision. They want us to keep mm-hmm. going to build on top of that. That when we first, when I first got in there and the governor first got in there for many of us who first got in there, the first thing he did is say, we're going to $15 minimum wage. I'm going for it right off the bat. I think there was a month in, uh, into office. That was what we we were able to get done. And ever since then, we just kept it going. We kept rolling. Uh, and even though everything has its ups and downs, we are a state that moves forward and not backwards. We're not going back to the 1950s and we ain't going back to the 1850s. We're <laughs> heading towards 2050. I,
2: I certainly believe you are right. You talked about how we saw a good showing from younger voters, which just Made my heart so warm to see that. Do you think the issue of abortion is what drove the younger voters to the polls?
7: Yes, I think it was definitely the issue on abortion. I think it was also the fact that it was a clear statement that, like, you know, the state has done a lot of progressive things for people and we can continue to go further. So abortion, uh, I'm sure when it comes to the assault weapons issue, right, all those things were top of mind. And I think we need to make sure that we listen to that. That Illinois, you know, we've, we had the Reproductive Health Act. Um, we had the Parental Notification Act. And now for us to take that one step further, to continue to be, you know, quote, unquote, a sanctuary uh, for women and pregnant people uh, who need an abortion uh, and need to come to Illinois. We need to continue to be stronger on that. And we have a clear mandate from the public to do that. And the way I would describe that mandate is, we had about mid-70s in terms of a super majority of the House. And now we're getting close to 80s. So uh-huh. we, we got to follow through on that. And my guess is that, you know, the other side, they're going to try to figure out what they need to do to play their games, to get stronger back to relevancy. And I think that there's no greater marker of saying, okay, if you are saying that you're listening to voters, we're going to put a bill that strengthens reproductive justice, reproductive health, abortion rights. We're going to put that on the board. If you're saying that you are not the party that is completely out of touch with voters, and you're not the party of extreme, then Republicans should come out and support a important abortion bill that the voters and the people of Illinois have said that they wanted. But I think that I, they do actually listen to their extremes. So maybe I'm wrong. You know what I mean? I, well, I was I, just going to ask you about, about that because, over- yeah,
2: yeah, I've talked to a couple of legislators who uh Democrats who said that they were kind of concerned because it seemed that the Republican party in Illinois had become more radical. A lot of the, um, moderates or at least Republicans that they had been able to work with in a bipartisan manner lost their primaries to Republicans who were frankly more far right. Do you worry about that going forward? I mean, obviously, we've got a Democratic majority, so it's not like we have to worry about them, you know, foisting awful bills on us. But do you worry about that just because it means maybe less bipartisanship going forward?
7: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a deep concern. One of the things that always stuck with me is that when these fake newspapers were being spread around, that I'm sure there are some, you know, a few moderate Republicans who exist out there, they didn't say anything. Mm
2: -hmm. They didn't
7: denounce these fake newspapers. They didn't denounce the disinformation. It tells me that they're too worried about the extreme elements of their base. to even come out and talk about what Dan is doing, Mm -hmm. talk about these newspapers. And now that they got their butts handed to them, you know, they kind of make some sly statements. You know, they go all the way and they say, you know, extremism is bad or blah, blah, but they don't really go in that hard. Mm -hmm. It's important to also remember, and I I think I want to clear this up. Ron DeSantis is Donald Trump that is able to focus. Donald Trump is an unfocused politician. Ron DeSantis is just a Yale version of Donald Trump. And so as these people say that they want to be more like Ron DeSantis, It's important to remember that most of the fights that we're having in this country right now are about what Ron DeSantis is doing in Florida. So when they say that they are saying they just want a quote unquote more effective Donald Trump. So it's important to remember they, they don't want, they still want some extreme in terms of the policies. They just don't want extreme in terms of the Twitter account. And so, you know, that's that's where, you know, that's where I'm at. And, and you know, and if you look at this election, I mean, clearly, we there was this whole mandate about purges happening, and yet the only purge that happened was Republican leadership. And my guess is, you know, if they can keep that together and they can hold that together and hold that tight, uh, that would be impressive. But I think that we have we have to deal with the battle here. Is either it's going to be Donald Trump's extreme politics, extreme Twitter accounts? or it's going to be the effective extremism of Ron DeSantis. Yeah.
2: I'm joined by State Senator Robert Peters. We have a caller from Bensonville who wants to join our conversation. Chad, you're on with me and uh, Senator Peters. Go ahead.
8: Yeah, thanks. Uh, It's a pleasure to to have you listening. to you guys talk. Uh, Senator, I love your attitude. It's the attitude we got to have. Let's go to war. That's what they like. Let's do it. I'm so proud of Illinois. Uh, you guys made the point that it, it is districts in New York and California that have allowed the Republicans to flip the House. Uh, that's the end result of that. Uh, we are the, the top of the mountain, the progressive mountain in this country, you know, giving this country Barack Obama. And uh, and I was just so proud of us. And all I could think of is, boy, listening to these people, their whole campaign was ripping our great state of Illinois, how horrible it it is, unsafe, so bad. But I bet they're going to continue living here, aren't they? You know, after opening <laughs> their big mouths about. But Darren
2: Bailey even yeah, moved to, to that hellhole downtown Chicago.
8: Yeah, uh, yeah, isn't it? on the Yeah, just ripping your own. St- I mean, really, what's worse than than you know, getting stabbed in the back by your your fellow citizens? Uh, you know, of Illinois, it's ridiculous. You know, and then there's of course the question of, you know, you you threaten Social Security. I worked my whole life. Social Security was other than COVID relief was the first. Penny I ever got that I didn't double earn in my life, and they talk about taking it away from me, uh, you know. And so that means war to me. And uh, but I wanted to say how proud I am of Illinois, and I'm with you, Senator. I'm actually going to start getting involved. I'm going to go to to uh.
2: Yay!
8: County. Know, That's beautiful. I'm going to say how can I help? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, hey, you know, I, 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 you know, I guess they think everybody on our side are these snowflakes and milk toast. And they don't know who they're <laughs> dealing with, you know, I mean, that's
2: funny. but anyway, thanks you guys. And keep Thank you, on. Chad. Thank you very much for that call. Well, we, we have about a minute left, uh, Senator Peters, anything that you want to make sure our listeners take away from our conversation
7: is that, you know, I would say that I hope people understand that I know it's been a tough period of time. Um, I know that there's been a lot thrown at us, but I think what Tuesday shows, and I think to be honest with you, what Illinois shows is that if you come together in community, you organize this community, you make demands that push people and say, how can we be more together? How can we be in more solidarity with each other? Um, We can actually uplift not only ourselves, but the state. um, And that compared to most other states in the entire country, you know, it's a rare thing to say. We haven't said this in Illinois in a long time, but we should be proud to be from Illinois, uh, and we can continue to do that. And the more that we're able to work together, the less we're divided on that, the better.
2: Well, it has been a pleasure having this conversation with you. I've been talking with State Senator Robert Peters. He rep- represents Illinois' 13th district. I hope you'll come back again. Robert, it was, uh, it was really nice talking with you.
7: Always, always. I love it.
2: Thank you. Appreciate that. Uh, We are going to take a break for news. And uh, when we come back, we are going to be talking to somebody who can address that whole youth vote that we referenced a few minutes ago. So uh let's get to news and we'll be back with more after this.
0: Jonas Esposito live local and progressive.
8: The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you'll call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect
0: that I'm on WCPT eight twenty.
2: We are um in just a little bit gonna be talking with Eric Zorn as we do every Thursday. I don't know if you had a chance. To look at this morning's Picayune Sentinel, um, you know, a lot of times, actually, I don't think we've done it this month. Oopsie. I have to get that booked. Uh, Jennifer Schulze, Mark Jacob and I take some time to talk about how reporters are doing their job, how the media is functioning, who's doing a good job, who's not so much doing a good job. Eric Zorn tackles that today in the Picayune Sentinel. Um, And the question, and the reason that I'm telling you this now is because when Eric comes at 430, if you want to give us a call and weigh in on this, uh, 773-763-9278. Eric uh, talked about um, hate when hate crimes occurs, you know, swastikas painted in a Jewish cemetery. Or most recently, though we didn't really talk about this Construction was briefly halted on the Obama Center, the Obama Presidential Center that's being built in Jackson Park, uh, because they found a noose at the construction site. Eric's question is, do we give the people behind these incidents exactly the attention and the publicity they're looking for by reporting On these on the on these incidents, or at least, you know, the noose at the Obama Presidential Center was on the front page of the Chicago Tribune when there were swastikas painted on graves at a Jewish cemetery. That was front page of the Chicago Sun-Times. This is a this is a question that newsrooms struggle with. I remember once a long time ago, back when I was at Channel 5, There was a hostage situation somewhere in one of the suburbs, and we were having a debate in the newsroom about how much information we should give, because obviously we didn't know whether or not it was a store, I think, in the suburbs. We didn't know whether or not the people there, the hostage taker, had access to a television and if we said, you know, here's where the police are and they've surrounded or this many cops are there, um would that influence the way the situation played out? These are questions that newsrooms and journalists struggle with all the time. And what I think is really interesting in this edition of the Picky and Sentinel is that one of the other things that Eric focuses on, you know, Dan Proft, the gentleman who, um, pretends, likes to, likes people to think he still lives around here, but lives in Florida. He does a conservative radio and really rich Republicans sort of use him, use a pack that he's set up to do political dirty tricks, like those newspapers that we received before the last election that were filled with lies and misinformation. You know, well, Dan Proft went after a reporter at the Daily Herald, um, a guy by the name of Russell Lassau, who um, wrote something that Mr. Proft did not approve of and in true Dan Proft fashion went after him just viciously. And Eric Zorn points out that at least part of what Dan Proft said could be considered libelous. And, you know, maybe this reporter needs to take Dan Proft to court. But again, it's that same question. The guy wrote something. Dan Proft wrote something really awful in response to it. So do you just ignore it? Do you turn the other cheek? Do you fight back? But if you fight back, if Russell LaSalle, um Russell LaSalle, I think his name is, Files a lawsuit. Does that just give more oxygen to this? You know, does it, does it make a, what would otherwise be a small deal a big deal? These are questions that people struggle with all the time. And we are going to be talking about this and more uh, when we uh, talk with Eric Zorn. Uh, before that, though, um, we are trying to get a hold of christina ramirez who's the president and executive director at a group called next gen america uh, we were having a little bit of trouble connecting with her on the phone i think we've got that worked out so let's just so we can talk to her let's just take a break right now and we'll continue on right after this
0: Take jonas pozito live local and progressive with you on the go by using the tune-in app on your phone just search for wcpt Eight twenty.
3: This is WCPT 820, where facts matter.
0: This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
2: We are happy to be joined by Christina Ramirez, who's the president and executive director at NextGen America. Uh, Christina, I'm so glad you joined us. Thank you so much for having me. Now, what is Next Gen America? What's the mission?
9: NextGen America is the country's largest youth vote organization. Um, this election, we contacted 9.6 million young voters across eight states. And just to understand the scale of what we do in 2020, we helped mobilize one in nine young voters that turned out to the polls.
2: Wow. How did you go about contacting um, these young voters.
9: So we try and organize and move young people to exercise their voting power anywhere and everywhere they are. So this election, we were on 245 college campuses across eight states. We have 28,000 volunteers that helped us send, uh, and make 25 million texts and phone calls. We also organize on dating apps because you can search by geography, political persuasion and gender and all kinds of an age and have conversations there as well as we um, help organize influencers because a lot of young people are never going to watch a TV ad, but they will follow social media influencers on TikTok and Instagram. And we organize hundreds of them to get the word out about this election to young people.
2: Well, you just said something that, um, you know, I think that more of us need to hear that. I mean, you know, I have two kids in their 20s. They don't get their news from television. They don't get their news from Facebook. They don't get their news from Twitter. You know, um, they use YouTube or once in a while uh, see something on TikTok or maybe join into a discussion on Reddit. And, you know, Christina, somebody like me, we don't necessarily know how to how to reach those people, how to use those platforms. Um what were when you reached out to people, what kinds of responses did you get? Like, oh, my God, I'm so glad I heard from you um, or, you know, I'm not really sure if I'm going to vote or not. Tell me why I should. What was it like having those conversations?
9: Yeah, you know, it really runs the gamut. You know, I remember myself being at a table at a historically black college. And just how many young women this election were registering and asking to get more information for the election I remember this young 19 year old woman that was like, I'm so glad you're here. I have to get registered because I feel like my life is on the line this election um, with overturning of um, uh uh, safe and legal abortion in my state, I want to register. And then there were other people that were like, I had no idea there was even a midterm. Thanks so much for being here and sharing this information. And some people too, you know, I think the uh, commonly held belief is that young people are apathetic or they're not politically engaged. Young people, actually, this is the most politically engaged generation in American history um, and also the most progressive. So um, we've had, some of the highest youth voter turnout in the last three elections where young people are really flexing their power. And a lot of Democrats are saying that the reason the Senate was won by Democrats and there wasn't a red wave is because of young voters that vote overwhelmingly for Democratic candidates.
2: So you think do you think the number one motivator was uh, Dobbs, the, the loss of abortion rights in so many places?
9: I mean, you know, young people are like all age demographics. There isn't one singular issue that's driving. But what we did see is, you know, we did research and polling before the decision of Roe and after. And there was a surge across states of young women registering to vote after the Roe decision. And many of the young women that we talked to pre-Roe decision, abortion wasn't there, but it definitely wasn't even in the top three or five issues. Wow. To be... Two out of three young voters post road decision said they felt like abortion was on the ballot and it was motivating them to vote. So we know that many, many young women came out and voted on this issue.
2: Now, your generation, um, your organization, Next Gen America, um, do you have a political slant? Do you want young people to come out and vote even if they're going to be voting Republican?
9: We want... You know, I believe in a thriving and strong democracy, and we should make it as easily, easy as possible for every single American to vote. We do believe that there is a clear vision on the big issues that young people face. You know, we face a climate catastrophe. We face a democracy in decline, and we are living at the most, um, a greatest moment of income inequality in American history. And we do believe that progressives have a better vision to um, address the pain of our generation. And young voters also believe that because overwhelmingly they vote for Democrats and progressives. though a huge portion of us, you know, we will say we're independents because we don't put our hope in any single politician or party. We put our hope in young people because we believe that our country needs the the courage, the boldness, and the impatience of young people to tackle these big problems that we face.
2: So, You're a national organization, right? Not just not just Illinois. We are um, nationally uh, organizing young people across the country. So are, are you going to be doing any work ahead of the runoff election in Georgia? Yes, we are. We actually have people already doing our volunteers, our army of volunteers
9: have already started phone banking and calling into Georgia to make sure young people come out this election. Um, we find that that's a really critical way people can help out in that race, no matter whether they live in Georgia or not. Um, people can go to our website, nextinamerica.org if they're interested in learning about how to volunteer, or also if they're a voter in Georgia and they want to check their registration status or find out what how, it's, how it is to vote in a runoff if they've never voted in a runoff. All of that information is there. No, this will just we've we've already decided the balance of power in the Senate, but this will also decide who really holds power long term in Georgia. And I mm-hmm. think young people should be at the forefront of deciding who that is. What, um
2: what is the age range of the people who you reach out to, the people who work in the organization? At what point are they too old to be next Chan America? <laughs> <laughs>
9: So our staff is all different ages, so we do tend to be a young organization. So we have many people in their 20s um, and 30s. You know, I'm a grandma millennial. I lead the organization. Um, but we classify young voters as 18 to 35. That is really our target audience. And what people should know is that millennials plus Gen Z, actually by next election, will be even bigger than the baby boomer generation. So this is the largest, the most diverse um, generational voting block in American history and so they have tremendous power and if we look at legislation that's just been moved forward recently the greatest investment by any country on the planet to tackle the climate crisis historic gun safety legislation student debt relief and reform on marijuana this is the power of the youth vote in action and there are a lot more that young people want to see done For our country, for their economy, for their future. And so I think we're just starting to see the beginning of how young people are going to reshape governments and how it works for everyone.
2: So, you don't think this phenomenon that we saw, which was kind of jaw dropping for somebody like me who's watched elections for a long time and has seen, you know, when the demographics come out, the age demographics about who voted, you know, it's always made me sad that it seemed like the younger you look, The fewer voters you get this time around, man, oh, man, it was a different world. Was it a one shot deal or are these young people going to are going to see what they can accomplish and keep at it? Do you think, Christina?
9: Well, I think we have to, one, make it easier for every single American to participate in vote. Um, And there's a lot we can do policy-wise, whether that's at a state or federal level to make it easier to vote. And I think it's really critical that we're always advocating for that. You know, we believe at the end of the day, our government works best when there is majority participation by the American public to decide who has the best ideas to solve the greatest problems we face. And young people as the largest generation should most definitely be at the forefront of that. So we've had three high watermarks, 2018, 2020, and 2022 of historic youth voter participation. Our organization has been around for about 10 years. And when we were started, we said we wanted to transform American politics to the power of young people, especially to tackle the climate crisis. And people laughed at our organization and said it was a waste of time and money. Really? Oh, you, you know, yeah. Very much so. They thought it was just like lighting money on fire that we shouldn't focus on young people because they would never turn out. But we were in, we've been in Pennsylvania almost since our inception. We've been in Arizona for years in Nevada for years, in Wisconsin and in Michigan. And these states prove that if you invest in young people over time, they really can transform how politics work. And so our commitment long-term is to make sure that young people have all the tools at their disposal to exercise their voting power. I don't think this is a fluke. This is now a pattern, and we're going to make sure that we're continuing to invest in the power of young people.
2: Well, I, you know, the I've seen... All of the demographic breakdowns. If younger voters turned out in large numbers, they would decide virtually every contest, every proposition, every constitutional amendment, every, every candidate race. And it's, it's always been amazing to me that there was this latent power that just seemed to be going unused in, in, you know, It seems like now young people are waking up to this, which means that, you know, my demographic is going to be shunted aside. And you know what, Christina, maybe it's time, you know, maybe it's time. I mean, we didn't do such a great job with the planet. Maybe, you know, it's your turn to take over. Well, you know, what we say is every time our
9: country has made a great leap forward, it required the courage, imagination and patience of young people. And with everything our country and planet is facing right now, that's the kind of vision and fight we need. But there's a lot of things we have to infix. I think we would all agree in this country that we want our democracy to work better, that we want to get money out of politics and have it based a lot more not on whose people's donors are in elected office. But who their voters are, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot more that needs to be done. But I really do think that young people will help us solve these problems through their voting power, and I think that young people see their vote does matter, and that they can make a difference. And you know, our message to elected officials was, uh, and that for us, the headline of this election is: don't underestimate the power of a pissed-off generation.
2: Yeah. Well, after you talked about climate change, you talked about the motivation, motivating uh, force of uh, losing abortion rights. What are some of the other issues that really seem to get the young younger voters fired up?
9: I'm sorry. Well, it's also very clear that, look, in 2020, you had some of the largest protest movements to the Black Lives Matter movement that really did help galvanize Many, many young people of all different colors, um, but also young people of color that translated their protest power in the streets to the ballot box. And so I think people understanding that there isn't, you know, voting isn't the only way you make change, but it is the most basic thing you must do, not the only thing you should do. And that's our message to young people. And so issues, this is, again, the most diverse generation, issues of racial justice, Issues about protecting marriage equality. You know, when you yourself are a person of color or queer or your friends are, you don't understand the vision for our country that doesn't include all of us. You yeah, that that's also a huge motivating factor for young people that believe this country is big enough and great enough for each and every single one of us.
2: I I think that you have really um, z- zoomed in on what is critical? Because I look at the younger generation and I see um, a large swath of people who've grown up, you know, w- of course, there's gay marriage. Why wouldn't there be gay marriage? Why shouldn't gay people be allowed to marry? And, you know, that kind of like, wait a minute, you're going to take away my my rights to abortion. Wait a minute. We're not going to, you know, encourage electric vehicles. um I see a generation that is the best of us in so many ways, and I think that your organization helping, you know, sometimes maybe nudge some of the people who um, feel that maybe there's just, you know, they're just one little drop in the big bucket of water, it doesn't really matter, and I think... Once your generation wakes up to the fact that you really, do have the power to control the world, I think it's going to be amazing. Yeah. Yes. That's that's our, that's our hope. And,
9: you know, we one generation always needs the other generations as well. We just hope we, I've heard from so many folks um, of older generations that are thanking young people and saying they feel inspired by what they did this election. But it really did take all of us. And we are just so proud that young people turned out and showed up for democracy. That they turned up, turned out, and showed up for a vision for all of us. And um, I told all of our staff and our volunteers this past week that in twenty, thirty years, when people look back in history and say this was the election where young people really exercised their power, that they can all be really proud that they were all part of that.
2: Absolutely. If somebody's listening to this and wants to get involved with your organization, uh, where can they go for more information?
9: Um, NextGenAmerica.org is our organization. They can find all of our information there, or they can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, any of the social media platforms to find us. But please connect with us. Also, you know, we have volunteers of all ages. One of our best phone bankers is actually my dad. So (laughs) people can help out no matter their age or wherever they are.
2: That's good to know. Christina, I think you're doing great work, and keep it up. Christina Ramirez is the president and executive director at Next Gen America. We had a huge youth turnout this last election. Let's hope that that is a trend that continues. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Take care. We're going to take a break. Be back with more right after this information is power stay
7: informed to know what's going on staying informed gives me the power of knowledge i wake up need to know what happened i turn on the radio because information is power wcpt
0: 820 where facts matter this is joan esposito live local and progressive on wcpt 820
2: it is thursday and on thursday we talk about the picayune sentinel it is the newsletter that Eric Zorn has been publishing since he left his uh, columnist job at the Chicago Tribune, and uh, you can get a free version that comes out every Thursday. You can also uh, become a paid subscriber, in which case you get special content that comes out on Tuesday, and uh, it is definitely <laughs> it's definitely worth your while. It's not uh, this one isn't going to break. The bank, it's uh, a lot of content for very little money. I told you at the beginning of this hour what I wanted to talk about with Eric. He talks about hate crimes, uh, the noose that was found at the Obama Presidential Center, the swastikas that were painted on gravestones at a local Jewish cemetery. Both of those stories were front page news in Chicago, Where is the line? At what point do you say, yes, this is definitely newsworthy. People need to know this is happening. But you are also giving the people who have perpetrated these acts the amplification that they crave. You know, they don't want just three people who are walking through the cemetery to see this. They want everybody to know that they're doing this. It becomes a real question and not just for journalists and newsrooms, but also later in today's issue of the Picayune Sentinel. Uh, Eric talks about how Dan Proft has gone after a reporter at the Daily Herald and whether or not that reporter has grounds to sue Dan Proft. But again, is it just a text that or a social media post that will come and go and is best Left untouched and ignored or by fighting back and standing up for yourself, do you amplify it? Do you give somebody like Dan Proft a great, a much larger audience than they ever would have gotten before if you had left it alone? This, these are the questions that I want Mr. Zorn to talk about with us today. Welcome, Eric. How, whoa, got your music. Woohoo. <laughs> Thanks, Andy. We can we can cut the music. I uh, I already walked all over the time that we allot for the music. So, Eric, how are you today? Good. I'm sorry
10: that my my connection was our connection wasn't working that well. I'm sorry about that. But I'm
2: that's sure OK. I needed uh, the time to set up the complexity of what I wanted to address with you today. Were you able to hear I, my I um, hear. Yes. analysis there? Well, I did. I, I thought it was an interesting point that you made. I mean, uh, uh,
10: that I at one, at one hand I talk about how I thought the media really overplayed the news at the Obama Center, and I thought that the media really uh, overplayed the the uh, vandalism of the Jewish gravestones up in Waukegan. I, I mean, these are stories, certainly, but. You don't want to give the the perpetrators of these of these hate crimes or or pranks or whatever they are. It's, it's hard to say, you know, it's hard to know what's in the mind of some of people when they do stuff like this. It, it's, uh, it's and it's
2: possible. also on the other side of it, on the journalism side of it, it's hard to know where to draw the line, because obviously we've we're seeing a huge rise in anti-Semitism and people need to know what's happening. But, you know, so what do you do you play the story, but play it on the second page or below the you know below the fold or in the B section? How do you weigh that? Well, I was hoping to hear today from more
10: people from the of state, like from some editors and some reporters about what they think about this. And I haven't heard really much from, from people in in my line of work or from my line of work about this, because, you know, if, if I'm a, uh, a city editor and I'm making a decision about this, I think that I don't play it really big, but I don't ignore it. I mean, and I know that sounds like, well, you're just, you're just uh, uh, having it both ways. But, but for instance, on Friday, last Friday, big picture of somebody holding a bag, what looks like a noose, uh, headlined above the fold on the front page, noose found at Obama Presidential Center. Now, we don't know if this was a bunch of white supremacists getting together to do this, or if it was somebody on the job who, who wanted to send a message to his fellow employers, or it was a bunch of kids who thought, you know, people get all excited about mm-hmm. news. Or, or, you know, I mean, you know, the, the Fox News was playing it like, well, this is obviously uh, they call it fake news, and they were saying oh. uh, this is clearly, it's clearly Jesse Smollett style hoax, and, and they don't know, we don't know, nobody knows what this is. I think playing it on page one is exactly what whoever did this wanted, that they wanted all this attention, and and so. I don't think that you play it that big. And, and similarly, yesterday in the Sun-Times, um, <clears throat> there, there were a number of, of uh, gravestones that were desecrated up in Waukegan and Jewish Cemetery. And the Sun-Times, I, it was a main story on their front page. They put three reporters on it. They did a double truck on page six and seven. They really went all out on this story. And I thought, well, the people who did this are looking for attention. Uh-huh. How much attention? How much attention do you want to give them? It's, it, exactly. It's like, you know, the, it's a little bit like a Klan rally. You know, I remember years ago the Klan had a rally in in Wheaton, and mm-hmm. was so much coverage of it. I felt like, and I actually attended it. I covered it uh, at the when I was working at the Tribune, and there was about you know seven or eight pathetic rural white guys, you know, doing their Klan thing from the back of a pickup truck, and I just thought why are we giving these people so much attention?
2: I, I, you know, it's like, it's like, this is what they wanted. Like, mm-hmm. and, and and we gave it to well, the same you know, discussion has been taking place in newsrooms for years about people who do mass killings or kill famous people. You know, they're obviously I mean, what was it? Was it the I think it was the guy uh, Chapman who uh, killed Lennon? Who's admitted in his parole hearing that he did it to become famous, um, and and yet how do you report on a story like that and and not mention or give the background of who did it? It's a it's a real double edged sword.
10: Well, I, I give credit to to the papers that don't repeatedly mention the name of some of these mass killers if they don't. I mean, I think you you have to include it once in a while, but. To keep using the name over and over again, uh-huh. so people, they, people do become famous, and, and you do know their names, and, and that's what they wanted. I don't think you want to give them that. Um, I don't think you know. I don't think the name should be suppressed. But I, but I do think that, that the media does know how to cover stories in a responsible way. We cover the media covers uh, suicides in a, in a fairly responsible way. If there are, if there are several suicides, especially among young people, at uh, at a high school or in, in a particular area. We don't play it up. We usually we don't talk about it because there is a contagion effect, a known contagion Mm -hmm. effect for suicide. And we don't we don't want to to uh, amplify that and and, normalize it. I mean, it is a normal thing. It's a tragic thing. We all know that. But if you cover it, you run the risk of of getting more of it. I felt the same way about the noose and about the the, the graveyard desecration, which is if you give it this kind of attention, the other haters out there are going to say, hey, well, you know, worked for them. Yeah. Yeah, I I could call somebody a name at a bar, or I could get on the front page of the Sun Times with a can of spray paint walking through a cemetery, and so I would I would tend to to um, myself as an editor I would say look let's let's play this story on page seven let's give it about seven or eight paragraphs let's say it's happening and, and give some reaction to the community but let's not. Act like it's this, this huge thing, even if it even. I mean, and, and anti-Semitism is on the rise, and and my, you know my piece in the and Sentinel today, I, I talk about what we know about the, the, the ADL, the uh, Anti-Defamation League, has reported a 430 percent increase in anti-Semitic incidents in Illinois uh, over the you know for the last five years. That's huge. That's a big deal. But I think but I think you, you want to think of how does a responsible media organization uh, help to suppress that. Rather than 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 amplify it, rather than hand these haters. Well, how do they? Are a megaphone? Well, I I think I think you don't play it that big, especially in a situation where nobody's actually killed. I mean, you have when you have or, or you're even physically uh, injured that you have a situation where somebody is is using these acts of vandalism to get attention to send a message, and you're helping them send that message when you, mm-hmm. you amplify it. Um, so, and, and I've heard from some thoughtful people today who said that that is tantamount to ignoring it or downplaying it. It's a very serious thing, and and it is a very serious thing. When you have swastikas painted on gravestones at a Jewish cemetery, that is a, a threatening and hateful message that is meant not just for the families of the people, but for the entire community, the entire Jewish community in, in Lake County, and, and the entire community of decent people in, in Lake County. So, so it is. It is an ominous message. But, but uh, I was when I saw these two stories, just so, several days apart in our in our major local newspaper, uh-huh. I thought, You know, we we need to like put this into perspective um, and and not not amplify it so much. So that was my And then I and then I heard you in your introduction sort of say, well, didn't I just kind of do the same thing when I when I took this uh, tweet. By the loathsome Dan Proft and amplified it to make a point that uh that, you know, he ought to be sued for calling a guy at the Daily herald i mean he, he, he you know in his tweet he he uh he called it a pederast, which is sort of a fancy term for child molesters it's an adult male who has illegal uh, who, who rapes young boys that's what a pederast is and, and and you know, Prof loves to call names, and he loves to you know, uh-huh. be edgy. But yeah, I mean, when he goes too far, and you know, part of my feeling of that, first of all, it's, it's I didn't put it at the top of my uh, top of my newsletter today. I uh, you know, I have ten thousand subscribers. I don't have, I don't have the kind of reach that the Tribune or some some times does. But I I think that. People in Illinois, the Republican Party in Illinois has got to distance itself itself from people like Dan Proff. He's nasty.
7: Well,
2: and that's I didn't mention. Problems. That's what you went on in in your uh, you know in in your article about this. That's what you went on to talk about when you talked about Mark Vargas um, and and something he said that maybe didn't mention Proft by name but seemed to repudiate him. Um, that uh, it's yeah, time for yeah. yeah. That a lot of people of this ilk to go. Well, right, and,
10: and you know, Proft has has been the architect of many, many losing political campaigns, uh, including his own for governor back uh, uh, whenever that was was it in twenty ten that he ran. I can't remember when he ran, but he finished fifth in a field of six, I think, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but you know, uh, and, and Propt is he's he's a harsh nasty guy who lives in Florida and he he types in his, his uh, radio show from there in the Chicago area and and, and stirs people up. And, you know, in, in this piece by Mark Vargas, who's who's the new co-owner of the conservative Illinois review, he says, think about this in terms of your doctor or a surgeon, if you or a loved one (laughs) surgery, would you call a doctor whose patients all died? Uh, And that's a direct reference to Proft. And, and, you know, I, I mean, I guess I maybe I should just sit back and let the Republican Party, you know, (laughs) but but it just it it really does strike me that that the party needs to get rid of its nastiest, most fringy members and uh, and and get back to uh, where it was when Jim Edgar and Judy Bartopinka and people like that were were the uh, mainstays of the party and not these crazy Darren Bailey types. So so um, that's, that's what I, I wish for. Uh, because yeah. The Republicans in Illinois just got trounced. It was unbelievable. They have the smallest number of, of members in the Illinois House since I mean, since anyone can remember. I mean, people were saying that Mike Madigan was the architect of that huge uh, supermajority. But uh, under Chris Welsh, the, uh, the majority has even gone up for Democrats. <laughs>
2: yeah, seems to be I doing just do, fine.
10: I, mean, I can't figure out why, if you're a Republican in the General Assembly, what what gets you into your car to drive to <laughs> Court? What good could you possibly do down there? There's yeah. nothing. They've got they've got nothing. They don't have the Supreme Court. They have no. They have none of the constitutional offices. They have. Super well, majority I'm going to
2: make a comment about that. That I think I think that from the people I know. Who are legislators down there? They were sad to see a lot of their moderate Republican colleagues get defeated by very far right uh, uh, candidates uh, in their Republican primaries and then eventually in those Republican districts win. I think that the reason that what's going to motivate the Republicans to go to Springfield, I think it's going to be a lot like what we've seen at the national level. It's going to be the, the Matt Gaetzes and the Marjorie Taylor Greens. I don't think that they're, they know they don't have any power to legislate. And I think they're just going to go down there to rabble rouse and, and be incendiary and be outrageous. And that seems to be their strong suit. That's my prediction. Yeah.
10: Yeah, but I, I, I'm sure you're right, except that there is no chance to to uh, for, for them to advance anything down there.
2: No, not a chance uh, at and all. Gonna,
10: and and they're, they're going to have to figure out how to work across the aisle and, and see if the, if the Democrats want to work with them. And you know, in some ways, it's it's good for the Democrats to be able to have their way, whatever they want to do. In other ways, you know, it's it's going to be on them. They they have some The the state has got problems and the Democrats are now in charge of everything. And they're going to have to, you know, come come through for us. And uh, so that's going to be interesting. I'm really interested in what they're going to do with the Safety Act. Let's uh,
2: let's take a break. Um, Eric Zorn in his Picayune Sentinel today talks about Brandon Johnson and he makes a prediction about Pat Quinn. Uh, we have news on what Pat Quinn actually said. We are going to bring that to you right after this.
0: Can't listen to Jonas Esposito? Surely you can't be serious. Live, local, and progressive in your car today? I am serious, and don't call me sure. Don't fret, you can still listen to her on the TuneIn app on both your phone and computer. Whoa, you
3: feel that right away. Oh. It's just refreshing. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter.
0: This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820.
2: On Thursday, I join Eric Zorn, and we talk about the Pickian Sentinel, which comes out every Thursday. Today's edition has a prediction. Mr. Zorn said that he thinks that Pat Quinn is going to join the very crowded field to be the next mayor of Chicago. He opted to say no. Not only is he not going to run, he's not sure who he's going to endorse. Why did you think he would throw his hat in the ring, Eric?
10: His hat in the ring all the time. I was really surprised. <laughs> uh, Shia Kapos over Politico had the same thing in her newsletter yesterday. And I've been texting with with uh, the former governor, uh, asking him about when, when and what he might announce. And he was being very coy with me.
1: Uh, yeah,
2: I had like, him on. I know. interviewed him on the radio and it was the same thing. It was the same thing. He would say all these things that a candidate would say. And I'd say, so kind of sounds like you're a candidate. Oh, no, no, haven't made up my mind. Nope, 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 nope.
10: Well, I think he's probably smart. I don't know what lane he would have occupied. First of all, I I admit that I I had a bum prediction, but I I wasn't uh, triumphant in it. I just thought that he was going to do it. And it gave me an opportunity to run my Pat Quinn bingo card. Yes, I know. It's like one of my favorite things I've ever done. It was 10 years ago that I created it at the Tribune. I got a chance to run that again. you know, Pat is just, he's a font of these these sayings, you know, these things talking about, always talking about, you know, my good friend Jesse White and uh, everybody in, nobody left out. And I'm the loving son of a loving mother. And uh, there's just all these Pat Quinisms that he, he has. And I'm going to miss those. And I like Pat personally. Uh, I just didn't know what lane he can occupy as running for, for mayor. Uh, and I saw in some of the coverage this afternoon. Somebody pointing out that he uh that he left Paul he left Paul Vallis as the only white candidate in the race now I don't know if that's going to last if there are other white people who are going to get in but I don't know how much that
2: matters in Chicago anymore uh, uh-huh. you know, you know, both you know I hadn't even noticed that till you mentioned it just now yeah and I'm not I'm not sure that he will like I mean, he'll
10: be the only one but but uh and I know that Chicago is not you know, nearly the, the the race, the racial voting. Uh, you know, Lori Lightfoot did really, really well, even in that in that uh, multi-candidate field early on in the, in the first pass through the election in 2019. Uh, so I don't think that people are voting as much nearly as on race as they did uh, say when you and I were around in in the early 80s when uh, when Harold Washington who was huh. running and the white people were all saying, you know, vote for. Vote for Rich Daly before it's too late, or to vote for Bernie, yes. was Bernie. Epton? Wasn't it Before mm-hmm. it's too late, you know, the black people are taking over. Well, I think those days are gone, and I don't think that being the only white candidate is necessarily a ticket to the uh, to the to the top two. Uh, that said, I don't I don't know who is going to occupy what lane. But Paul Vallis is a much more conservative candidate than Quinn, and uh, I, I don't think that when they were saying, "Well, are you going to endorse Ballis?" and I, I don't necessarily think that, that Dallas's politics line up with Quinn's at all. I think that
2: No, Quinn might well I don't address, see that he might either. Well
10: endorse, he might well endorse Brandon Johnson, Is getting a lot of attention from the unions.
2: Yes, uh, and that's what you also mentioned in the article. And it's a point that I've made with people, you know, as you pointed out, uh, Chewy Garcia, who has immense popularity, got in the race, but got in the race kind of late. And a lot of money is already committed and a lot of union endorsements are already committed. Many of those union endorsements going to Brandon Johnson.
10: Yeah, and I was a little surprised that the unions decided they needed to jump in now because your petitions aren't even due until the Monday after Thanksgiving. And we don't know whose petitions are going to survive a challenge. I mean, I'm assuming Brandon Johnson's will. Uh, but you know, I think you want to let the election play out. And also... I would think that these endorsements might mean more if they came in January or early February when people are voting at the end of February, rather than now that uh, they're going to, it's going to be stale. It's not going to get any coverage when you, when you release your endorsements. Now, I was wondering whether the Brandon Johnson endorsements weren't an attempt to stave off Chewie Garcia running because Julie yeah. was the progressive candidate for mayor um, back, uh, when he challenged yeah. uh, Mayor Emanuel. and. And, you know, he's a U.S. congressman. He's, I'm sure he's got a lot of money. He's the, certainly the preeminent um, Latino candidate, Hispanic candidate. So I'm surprised that so many people have, have already you put their markers down in this race. And it could change, I suppose, but, but, uh, but we'll see. It's going to be a really interesting field. And we may see some surprises in the, next, in the next week and a half about who's actually out there with petitions. I was surprised that Tom Tunney decided not to run Alderman Tunney. It uh, mm-hmm. uh, seemed like he was making all the moves, and and there there's, there are others who are who are um, you know, people were saying, oh, you know, this, this person's going to run. We're sure, uh, you know, we're sure that uh, you know, that, for instance, the people talking about Judy uh, Friedland, I think, a Friedland, a former Chicago Building Commissioner, she was yeah. apparently really looking around, and and uh, you know, Brian uh, Hopkins was
2: supposedly looking out. into it pretty hard too.
10: And, and Carlos Ramirez Rosa and Anthony Beal, there were those people who, who people thought were plying the ground that they were going to run, and now it looks like they're not. So, so uh, anyway, it's it, it's really interesting, and I hope that you and I will have many good conversations about this race uh, going forward because it's uh, it's going to be fascinating to watch.
1: Well, Eric, it
2: is always a pleasure to talk to you every Thursday, my friend. I look forward to our conversation uh, next week. Wait a minute. Uh, actually, no, next week no, is no, Thanksgiving. No, no. Never mind. No, it's two it's weeks. Good. Two weeks. Two weeks. See you in two weeks. Okay, take care. Uh, that's going to do it for me. Patty Vasquez is next. Have a great evening. Good night.